This show was first broadcast on the 15th of November, 2007. The science is still valid, the technology still hasn't advanced, but this show is rebroadcast in memory of Charles Willock. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Diffusion Nuclear Special. Lie back while we radiate your whole body with weird and wonderful science. I'm Emily Fern. In this edition, we will have a number of special guests and we'll be looking at issues of the nuclear debate which seem to have received less than appropriate attention. And here's Charles Willock to tell us a bit about that. Since it is not possible for us to take on the massive project of addressing all factors in global warming, or for that matter even the nuclear debate, over the next two programs we'll be looking at some of the underexplored issues of nuclear power generation, those of waste storage and proliferation risk. When exploring the issue, it is also worth keeping in mind that Generation 4, or Gen 4 reactors, which form the basis of the proposed solution to global warming, have not yet been built. Indeed, no working prototypes exist. They are at the planning stage only. Viable commercial reactors are some decades off. The Global Nuclear Energy Partnership, GNEP, a program initiated by George W. Bush to significantly expand the use of nuclear power and waste handling worldwide is also in its early stages and is based on Gen 4 reactors. The US National Academy of Sciences has indicated that, quote, the program should not go forward at its current pace, and they did that on the basis of both economic and technological reasons. In spite of substantial amounts of radioactive waste being accumulated in the United States, no radioactive waste repository has been approved there. The prime site, Yucca Mountain in Nevada, has received many setbacks to getting online. It's worth noting that Nevada has no nuclear power stations. However, it is also worth remembering that nuclear power in some form or other is a practical reality of everyday life for many people. Even simple back-of-the-envelope calculations can demonstrate the astonishing amount of energy available within the atom. Many highly motivated and competent scientists are working on the multitude of issues of ensuring safety, reducing waste, and successfully storing it. You can find links to much of our research on this nuclear special on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. This week, we will look at some issues surrounding the storage of nuclear waste, in particular how certain nuclear storage materials are broken down by radioactive decay. We also look at the way in which nuclear waste cleanup has been handled in Australia, in particular the Maralinga cleanup. With certain provisos, both of our interviewees this week believe safe storage is possible. First, a very brief background on particular aspects of nuclear physics. Plutonium-239 decays to uranium-235 by emission of an alpha particle, which consists of two protons and two neutrons. Plutonium is also chemically toxic and can catch fire easily when finely divided. Like uranium-235, the isotope 
plutonium-239, is also quite problematic in that it is particularly suitable for creating nuclear bombs and only a very small quantity is required. A radioactive material needs to be stored for about 10 times its half-life to ensure safety from its radioactive properties. An important example is plutonium-239, which has a half-life of 24,100 years and thus needs to be safely stored for a period of around 240,000 years. Thank you, Charles. An important aspect of nuclear waste storage is that the material holding the waste is not broken down by its radiation. Dr Ian Farnan of Cambridge University's Earth Sciences Department talks with Charles Willock about a significant discovery in understanding very long-term storage of radioactive waste. Actinides are a series in the periodic table of elements which includes uranium and plutonium. Until now, the viability of a material to store actinides has been assessed based on sophisticated mathematical modelling of how storage materials behave. Ian Farnan at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge and colleagues Herman Cho and William J. Weber at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Richland, Washington have taken that one step further. They have been able to measure, rather than model, the damage and from those measurements more accurately assess the durability of a storage material. Their paper, published in Nature on the 11th of January 2007, goes by the title Quantification of Actinide Alpha Radiation Damage in Minerals and Ceramics. In essence, they measured the actual damage induced by individual radioactive disintegrations rather than modelling those values. And we started by talking about the details of what happens within the storage material. Well, Charles, I should just point out that when an alpha particle is emitted from a uh, heavy nucleus like plutonium, um, there's two, two damage processes. One is the alpha particle itself, but that is very high energy. You can think of it as a sort of very fast bullet that rips through the structure and will only displace electrons uh, and only a few hundred atoms as it's actually stopped by eventual collisions with other atoms in the structure. But the most of the damage is actually caused by the recoil of the heavy part of the um, atom. So for um, plutonium-239, for example, when that emits an alpha particle, you, you, you get left with a uranium-235 nucleus, which then recoils a bit like a howitzer would, would do with firing a shell, but then, you know, the there's an, equal, there's an equal force in the opposite direction of a very massive object, and it's that massive object that causes most of what we call the structural damage, which is the displacing of atoms off their crystalline lattice position. We used MRI. Well, not, it's not exactly MRI. It's called magnetic resonance spectroscopy because we can tell from the, the signal of a silicon atom whether it's sitting on a, a regular lattice site in, a, in, a, in, a, in an undamaged environment or whether it's been in one of these damaged environments. The important thing about that is that we can just count directly. We count the intensity of the signal uh, in each of those two environments, and that's directly proportional to the number of atoms that are in those different environments. Um, so the, the environments, by the environments I mean either an undamaged crystal or a damaged uh, radiation damaged area. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why MRI is such a good imaging technique, is that it faithfully reproduces the intensity uh, of a signal corresponding to the, num the amount of material which is, which is generating that signal. That's not always the case in other scientific probes. There's antimony, arsenic, 
like aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. You are listening to Diffusion Science Radio, and we are talking with Dr. Ian Farnan at the University of Cambridge. And so in terms of the estimate of the amount of damage, people were previously using a calculation based on an estimate of 1,000 to 2,000. That's right. What did you discover? We came up with a number which is pretty close to 5,000 atoms displaced per decay. So that would be a total decay from both the alpha particle displacements and this heavy displacement that I, I talked about just now. The other methods are what we call ballistic models, where a series of, they're just computer models really, where an arrangement of atoms is given some sort of average property of all the atoms in the structure, uh, and then you give one of the atoms a very large amount of energy, equivalent to if it had had a collision with um, one of these uh, alpha recoiling nuclei, and measure the atoms that are displaced. But the trouble with this model is that it really is just based around the idea that you have a crystal lattice and there's an energy to displace an atom off one of its crystal sites. But it doesn't really take into account any of the sort of real physics of the, of the process of, of actually scrambling a very large number of atoms uh, and whether those atoms can actually find their way back onto a crystal site at the end of the very short process. So, very, very rapid, high-energy process. So once they've been displaced, if there's a lot of them that have been displaced, there's essentially no crystalline structure alignment left that they can actually settle into. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. And in fact, there's a competition. There's a competition between, uh, if you like, the temperature at which the event takes place. So at the higher temperatures, you get a little bit more mobility. And so we get what's called epitaxial recrystallization, which is that the, the atoms can find their way back onto the surrounding crystal and the material can rebuild itself. Now, once you get above a certain temperature, a lot of materials can rebuild themselves. So there are materials which are more radiation resistant than the zircons that we looked at, where you'll find the total number of atoms displaced would be less after the sort of two-stage process of the sort of disruption of the structure if you like, the thermal recovery of the structure. Is that some kind of annealing process, is it? Yeah, exactly, it's mm. an annealing process. And that's what, you know, that, that can happen in nature. So you have to be careful when you use natural um, samples of zircon that, that you really understand what's been the, the thermal history of those samples over the hundreds of millions of years that they've been sitting in the Earth, accumulating their radiation damage. Now, that seems to have two particularly significant consequences. One in terms of ability to determine how useful current materials are for storing high-level radioactive waste. There's two scenarios, really, for creating high-level waste. And in certain countries in Western Europe, so UK, France, and in Germany, and also in Japan, nuclear fuel has been reprocessed. And actually remove most of the heavy actinide nuclei, such as the uranium and the plutonium, and they only dispose of, or they intend only to dispose of at the moment, the what we call the fission product fraction. This would contain the isotopes you may have heard of, like uh, cesium-137, strontium-90. These are pretty hot isotopes because they have short half-lives of around 30 years. And those are put into glass. And the, the idea is that they would have only a small amount of the actinide 
which is the uranium and plutonium, because that would be only the, the amount that was left over from really the efficiency of the extraction process. But then if you want to separately dispose of these other materials, then you go to other types of scenarios where you'd use a ceramic. And that's really where the question that our research addressed was the idea of these ceramic materials and how their structure is destroyed internally by the radioactive decay. So you have to be a little bit careful in terms of what the, what the particular nuclear waste you're talking about because the, the, some of the glass wastes are they're thought to be only you know, seriously dangerous over about 300 years, which would be 10 half-lives of these strontium and cesium. Now, there are still other isotopes within those which you would be concerned about, like technetium or cesium-135. The key thing is to understand if you want to know, uh, say, say you're building a nuclear waste repository, you can probably guarantee its integrity over the next 300 years, either through, even by engineering controls, you could ensure that, and the geology would be pretty easy to be certain about over those sorts of short timescales. But what really starts to become important is when you go to the really long timescales, if you have material in this repository, which is plutonium or neptunium, uh, those have very long half-lives. And as people do predictions of how these repositories behave, they calculate that the major danger to a population over these tens to hundreds of thousands of years would be from these isotopes. And of course, at those sort of timescales, your knowledge of how the geology of the site is going to behave, it's becoming more and more uncertain the further you move away from the date of emplacement. So our work is trying to say, well, let's make the best possible material which can provide a much greater guarantee of the integrity of the material itself as these other uncertainties get very large. And it seems you have a really quite a remarkable tool now to do that, at least for some, well, yeah, some that, types of materials. That was the interest. I mean, the major interest was that we could very sensitively measure the radiation damage, and that was the radiation damage from plutonium-239 itself. That hadn't really been done before. Usually you have to use another isotope of plutonium called plutonium-238, which decays much more rapidly, in order to be able to see the effect of plutonium decay. So we could see the direct effect of plutonium-239 decay, and we could start to quantify its behavior on the thousand-year type of timescale, which is the type of timescale that you want to have if you're going to ensure the integrity of the material to the level that the regulators of nuclear waste disposal sites will require. You are listening to Diffusion Science Radio and we are talking with Dr Ian Farnan of the University of Cambridge. We also discussed how the new values for disintegration impacts affect the calculation of durability for storage materials. Now the difficulty as I understand it is uh, for zircon in particular with 5,000 rather than 1 to 2,000 crystalline impacts you discovered that zircon instead of the several hundred thousand year durability it came down to a rather shorter figure. Well yes we would predict that if the industry would like to put in 10 weight percent of plutonium uh, as a sort of benchmark into these um, ceramic. The material will be amorphous in about 1,400 years, so that would mean it would be completely uh, lost its crystalline structure. Now, there are amorphous zircons which exist that we find in nature, and we've worked on some of those. So even though it's amorphous, there's still the question of whether it will actually be dissolved or how rapidly it will be dissolved, and that still needs to be addressed in great detail. The repository in, in Yucca Mountain for the Americans seemed to have uh, a number of problems. First of all, the earthquakes, which could potentially do a considerable amount of damage to the mechanical structure of the repository. And second, the porosity of the soil, which could then 
if one used leachable materials, could then become a, a water problem. Is that yeah, how you see it? I mean, one of the key things is that the material that Yucca Mountain is made out of is what's called a volcanic tuff, which is quite often a glassy-type material that's then been transformed. There, there are parts of it that are quite absorptive, so you know, even though things leak out they could be absorbed onto the surface of the minerals which make up the site. The only problem is you, you may get water coming through the site, which may then entrain them again and bring them up to the surface. But I mean, the whole proposition with Yucca Mountain was that it was a very dry area and basically above the water table. And but some of the more important things are things like changes in the water table level. Basically, the US regulators have moved the goalposts on the people there so they did have a 10,000-year regulatory limit, and that's recently been challenged by, the, I think, the Environmental Protection Agency, and they've been told to come up with another limit, which is more like 300,000 years. And so when you start to do that, you see then the, the likelihood of a geological event, then like an earthquake or, a, or even a, you know, a volcanic intrusion is another thing that's been considered at uh, Yucca Mountain, is, is then increased to, to a level of significance where it needs to be considered. So these are very complicated issues because of the very large timescales that we have to think about. In essence, Homo sapiens have been around for 180,000 years, which is inside the quarter of a million limit of consideration for, for, for example, yeah, plutonium yeah. waste. And, and that seems to be difficult to, to guarantee the integrity of something for that sort of period of time. Exactly. And the thing is, is how, how good does the guarantee have to be for us to actually put into place a nuclear waste repository? You know, there are certain people who, who believe it probably is soluble and that the engineering and the geological controls that we have are good enough. And that they're not people who are mad nuclear proponents. They're people who study the, the, the problem very seriously. There are other people who say you can describe the problem with mathematical models as well as you like, um, but that sometimes something that you haven't thought of and is not put into the model comes up and bites you. Mm. Uh, I mean, and that happened with the... Um, in fact, at Yucca Mountain, they had an issue with the presence of chlorine-36 from, from bomb tests, which had been basically transported through the mountain and came out the other side. And that, according to all of the models, that shouldn't have happened. And the reason it wouldn't have happened, because a different mode of transport was moving the chlorine-36. It was absorbing onto colloidal particles. So it was absorbing onto a colloidal particle. And then that colloidal particle was being transported in the water. And that is something that it wasn't, wasn't in the model. But you knew that the chlorine would likely absorb to the rock, but it was the fact that it absorbed to these very, very fine particles meant that it got transported. But that's now been built into the model. So as we understand more, we can build more into the models. But you have to be careful that you have very, very complex models and that you're sure that they describe all of the processes that are important. And that takes, takes time to be certain of that. We have been listening to Dr Ian Farnan at the Department of Earth Sciences, University of Cambridge. The musical interludes have been taken from The Elements by Tom Lehrer, with music by Sir Arthur Sullivan. That was Charles Willock talking with Ian Farnan on problems of storing radioactive waste. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Thanks, Charles. Alan Parkinson, a nuclear engineer, has written a book, Maralinga, Australia's Nuclear Waste Cover-Up. I spoke by phone and started by asking, where is Maralinga and what happened there? Maralinga is uh, in South Australia, the 
far north of South Australia. It was the site where Britain uh, tried or tested seven nuclear explosions. They set off seven nuclear bombs at Maralinga. The first British nuclear bomb was set off in the Montebello Islands off the northwest coast of Australia. From there, they went to a place called Emu, which is in South Australia. They set off two more bombs there. Then they went back to the Montebello Islands and released three more bombs. And then they went to Maralinga, and there they exploded seven nuclear bombs. And then, presumably, as a result of that, there was a significant amount of plutonium around? No. In my book, I say that most people have probably never heard of Maralinga, don't know that it's in Australia, South Australia, don't know that uh, seven nuclear bombs have been exploded there. Uh, The second thing I say is that they probably don't know that it was not the bombs which led to this contamination. Right. After the British had finished exploding these nuclear weapons... They uh, conducted a series of trials which was supposed to be testing the safety of nuclear weapons in storage or in transit. And what they did, they set off a further 15 nuclear bombs that exploded them in a fashion which would not allow a nuclear explosion. Now, 12 of those bombs contained plutonium and uranium. The other three were calibration rounds which contained only only uranium. What they did, for for these types of nuclear weapons to work properly, you have to set off 32 or 64 chemical explosives simultaneously so that it compresses the plutonium to make the bomb work. In these trials, they set off the explosives uncoordinated so that they could not compress, they did not all go off together, one would go off ahead of the others. And this would cause a chemical explosion, but not a nuclear explosion. However, that chemical explosion, the heat from that chemical explosion, was sufficient to melt the plutonium and uranium and throw the whole lot up to 1,000 metres into the air. And then it was caught by the wind and spread over a huge area of South Australia and beyond. OK, and the clean-up? Well, the... <laughs> The British, they said they did a clean-up. That was in 1967. In the mid-1980s, scientists from the Australian Radiation Laboratory went out to site, did some checking, found that the whole site was not the way that it had been presented by the British to the Australian government. That led to a royal commission, uh, which uh, Prime Minister Hawke initiated, and the conclusions of that commission were that the site was in a thoroughly unsatisfactory state, and that there should be a proper clean-up. That led to the government, again, it was the Hawke government which set up the, well, sorry, it was the Keating government by then, which set up a partial clean-up. The idea was to uh, scrape up contaminated soil from a small area and bury that soil in a trench up to 15 metres deep. And then there were some pits which contained thousands of tonnes of steel, concrete, lead bricks contaminated with plutonium. Those pits were to be treated by a process of vitrification which would immobilise the plutonium for perhaps a million years. I became involved in this project in uh, 1989 initially when I assessed 
some 30 options for the cleanup. I did the costings and all that sort of thing. And then in 1993, I was appointed a government representative to oversee the project and also a member of the, the minister's advisory committee. We started, we dug trenches, we scraped up contaminated soil. It was contaminated with plutonium and uranium and buried that soil in these trenches. The largest trench was 200 metres long, 100 metres wide and 15 metres deep. And then the second part of the project was to treat these pits by this vitrification process. And what happens there is that an American company had developed this technology, but a graphite electrode, four corners of a pit, and then pump about four megawatts of electricity into that pit to melt everything in it and turn it into a hard glass-like rock. Well, initially it's molten, but uh, on cooling and hardening, it would immobilize the plutonium. Now, I didn't see that part because <laughs> I objected to the way that the second part of that project was being handled. And for my sins, I was fired, so I then became an advisor to the Marolinga Charger, the traditional owners. Oh, didn't even know the basic forms of radiation. No, none of them. None of them who planned that uh, second part of the project had any nuclear background. None of them knew anything about the disposal of nuclear waste. Golly. So, given um, other situations around the world with regard to nuclear, Yucca Mountain, wind scale, and the recent Thorpe leakage, the shutdown of the Fosmark reactors, Chernobyl, the possibilities of terrorist attack using all sorts of angles, and the secrecy, and the way in which it seems to be a cavalier way in which um, clean-up or actually taking responsibility. Doesn't that shake your faith in nuclear? No. Uh -huh. Now, nothing has come along which has shaken my faith, except if you have people who don't know what they're doing. You've been listening to Alan Parkinson, nuclear engineer and author of Maralinga, Australia's Nuclear Waste Cover-Up. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were special guests, Ian Farnan. And also Alan Parkinson. And regular contributors were Patrick Ruby, Ian Wolfe and Charles Willock. Diffusion has been produced by Charles Willock and Ian Wolfe and panelled by Celine Steinfeld in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Emily Fern. Join us inside your nuclear pot of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. It's a scientific fact. <laughs> It's a scientific fact A scientific fact It has to be correct It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon it's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. 
It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.